It's Thursday, December 1st, 2016. This is the Hermetic Hour. I'm your host, Pope Runyon, and tonight we will review the recently published Compendium of Manuscript Translations dealing with the homunculus compiled and edited by Joseph Uncello from Forehands Press, Viatorium and Orboros Press. Now, this is one of the most remarkable books on alchemy and magic to have appeared since the release of Picatrix. We now have Paracelsus's own detailed accounts of the homunculus operation the creation of a humanoid being using male sperm and an artificial female womb. Now, this is followed by other Renaissance period authors elaborating on the process and presenting eyewitness accounts of successful homunculi experiments. We are treated to works that seem to be the source material for the chemical wedding of Christian Rosencruz the Tyrol experiment cited by W. Somerset Maugham in his 1908 novel, The Magician, and The Little King and Queen created by Dr. Pretorius in the 1934 horror film, The Bride of Frankenstein. And for comic relief, we have an Arabic version of the operation using a sheep and a cow without their consent. And for cultural diversity, we are treated to a poetic Taoist perspective on the process. And for redeeming social value, we have a Valentinian Christian approach to making a magical child by the German philosopher Jacob Borm, which may well have been the inspiration for Aleister Crowley's Moonchild. So if you want to delve into the dark secrets of creation, join us, and we will open up the forbidden book Codex Homunculi. Now, the official title of this book is Ocleth Labyrinthus, Labyrinthus Archeodoxae, number one of a series zero through seven, annotated and edited by Joseph Vincello. This is volume one, the Codex Homunculi. Now, Actually, it's Codex Homunculus. That's, uh, that's the singular in homunculi is the, is the plural. The book features translations by Marcus Wolf, Jens Art, Darius Klein, Eric Perdue, Aroli Galoy, Ibrahim Al-Manai, and Juan Wren. of works by Paracelsus, Gerhard Dorn, Alonzo Tostado, Heinrich Klonarth, Jabir ibn Hayyan, Mohammed ibn Omeyu, and Zang Budan Wu Shuyang, and early modern English translations of works by Paracelsus, Oswald Kroll, Michael Sandegovius, Jacob Borm, Hermes Trismegistus, and Heinrich Cornelius Agrippa. Now, the book is illustrated by the author's surrealistic photographs and drawings, and it is handsomely published in several editions by Freehand Press and or Boros Press in Seattle, Washington, and it can be ordered from them online. Now, as I said above, this is one of the most remarkable books on alchemy and magic to have appeared since the release of Picatrix in English at the close of the last century. Now, I advise readers to read it from cover to cover and then read it again carefully. This is not a book you will just want to stick on your library shelf and use for reference. It is an intellectual and spiritual experience that you must work through in order to understand its meaning, along with its ancient secrets, that will please the practicing alchemists and magicians. It is also a prophecy and a philosophical reflection 
for our rapidly developing artificial intelligence, the cyborgs and androids and the creators, the programmers of them. They must ask themselves, are they in fact creating soulless homunculi? Now the book begins with four articles by the famous 10th century alchemist Paracelsus, Theophrastus Bombastus himself, in which he expounds on the nature of the creative process. He confirms the Valentinian proposition that the human soul is both male and female, and he affirms that only a man and a woman can produce a true human being. He does not use the term parthenogenesis, that's unisexual reproduction, but he does understand the process, and he considers the artificially inseminated homunculus to be a soulless being. Paracelsus believes that the soul comes down from heaven and animates the fetus of a man and his wife producing an ensouled human being. He also believes that the woman's imagination and emotions during pregnancy will influence the child. Now, L. Ron Hubbard adopted this idea in Dianetics, auditing his Scientologists all the way back into the womb to clear their engroups. Now, perhaps this is also the reason that Crowley suggested that women should not participate emotionally in the programming of an astral magical child in the sex magic of the ninth degree. Now, all three of these gentlemen, Paracelsus, Hubbard, and Crowley, were all misogynists. The reproductive process Paracelsus describes is a physical metaphor for an astral process. The creation of an invisible magical offspring programmed to accomplish a purpose involving congrex between a man and a woman. And if such an operation is undertaken by two men, it produces a soulless demon, an astral monster. And Paracelsus condemns it as utterly evil and likens it to the biblical Sodom and Gomorrah, suggesting that it will bring down hellfire on those who attempt it. Before we condemn old Paracelsus for being also homophobic, we, we should consider the mechanics of the 11th degree. And, at the risk of being politically incorrect, we should agree with him. Paracelsus also gives us a very useful treatise on magical images, probably derived from Thibet ibn Qura's De Imaginibus. He confirms that the mind thinks in images, not words and how important they are in religion and magic. And he also recommends palmistry, chiromacy, and suggests that its principles of patterning be applied to life forms, land forms, and all natural objects. This leads into a discussion of magical correspondences and sympathetic magic. Uh, For example, growing sunflowers will bring about sunny weather. And I might mention, though, that uh, more recently, the anthropologist Levi Strauss came up with something very similar and and, and, uh, and had a, um, a system analyzing analyzing patterns very similar to uh, uh, Paracelsus's idea of, uh, of, of the chromacy of, of natural objects. This leads into a discussion... A magical correspondence is sympathetic magic, as I said. Now, we are treated to a description of the homunculus operation and its relation to the interior stars, the chakras and astral forms. Also, a brief review of magical techniques using crystals and mirrors. Now, going on to Gerhard Dorn's treatise on Paracelsus's homunculi, which I believe is one of Valentine Andrea's sources for his chemical wedding of Christian Rosencruz. <clears throat> By the way, the chemical wedding of Christian Rosencruz involves the creation of a, a male and a female uh, homunculus or homunculi, uh, which are which which they do manage to ensoul, but but. Uh, uh, it seems that Valentine Andrea, who wrote the chemical wedding, must have read uh, must have read some of these treatises, especially Gerhard Dorn's treatise, uh, 
uh, that is translated here. Following this, we have a very long, pious, alchemical analysis of the Christian Immaculate Conception, which has Mary developing the baby Jesus without apparent pregnancy, uh, what the tabloids call a baby bump, or something one of my colleagues claims to have accomplished recently using the spirit Yophiel. Now then, perhaps for comic relief, we have a 9th century Arab treatise on homunculus creation using a cow and or a sheep, a ewe, of course, for the matrix of development. Now we can only surmise that the 11th degree version might involve a bull and a ram, but then we might consider that more dangerous than the hellfire that fell on Sodom and Gomorrah. However, you know, considering this, uh, Governor Brown of California has more has recently uh, uh, wanted to license and smog check our cattle to help control methane emissions. So uh, we could uh, adopt the Arabian method uh, for our livestock and artificially inseminate the cows with homunculi programmed to uh, transmute methane into a harmless gas. That would be a good use for sexual alchemy, I think. Uh, Now, Jacob uh, Borm's article on the magical child is entirely physical and involves the magical programming of a real baby. Now, this is very Valentinian in keeping with Borm's philosophy honoring the spirituality of women, quite opposite to Paracelsus and Crowley. However, this may well have been Crowley's inspiration for his Moonchild novel. Now, the inclusion of tracts from the Pomander and Asclepius of Hermes Trismegistus, 2nd century, seems to underpin the whole process. Now, Hermes lectures on the creation of the gods by men and the animation of their idols. Now, this, of course, is the origin of uh, Randolph and Martin's fluid condensers, because Hermes suggests that they, you know, they pack these idols with a mixture of herbs and, and, uh, and magical substances. Cornelius Agrippa weighs in with a formula to create frogs using powder made from dead ducks. Wah, wah, wah. Yeah, rivet. Uh, now, one of the most Interesting works in the book is in the appendix. A fairly modern commentary on homunculi called The Philosophy of Long Life by Jean Finot uh, from 1906. Now, in this article, the author gives us the Tyrol homunculus experiment cited by Somerset Maugham in his 1908 novel, The Magician, and an account of the automaton chess master who even played against Napoleon, and he was actually a double amputee disguised as a robot, and the original ancient source for the scene in the 1934 universal film The Bride of Frankenstein, in which Dr. Pretorius unveils his little king and queen in their glass beakers, And, of course, this was before the days of CGI and alchemy in its own right. So the royal couple had to be full size for the camera, but made to appear very small on the tabletop set. Now, Jean Fanel believed in 1906 that science would eventually create the homunculus. And he had this to say about it. The homunculi of tomorrow may thus embellish and brighten the aspect of some future century. Some fine day, strong and powerful, they will perhaps form another kind of humanity and will claim their rights from men. The produce of quick brains they will create by means of synthesis beings like themselves. Humanity will thus at last be divided into man-monkeys and homunculi. Now, how many science fiction stories and films have we read and seen based on Jean Fanot's ominous prediction? <laughs>
Now, that concludes my formal review, and so we will enjoy the rest of our time here by picking out some selections in the book and, uh, and reading them, because this really is, as I say, a fascinating, fascinating book. And by the way, let me mention that I uh, that uh, um, Mr. Mr. Uncello. Uh, um, I think that's the way. I think that's the way you should pronounce it. Let me see. Um, that he he appears to be a thalamite because he signs his uh, he dates he dates his uh, introduction of E V era of vulgarity. Um, yeah, Joseph and Sebo. The Viatorium Press, Seattle, summer 2016 E V. So he appears to be a thalamite, but uh, and and uh, however, I do want to point out that I have reviewed after I read the book. And before the show, I reviewed uh, the uh, uh, the secret OTO papers, which I have from way way back. Uh, uh, they are magic and emblems and modes of use, and and uh, the homunculus uh, article in, in in King's book and and uh, secret rituals of the OTO. And, Actually, there are. There's no. You're not going to find when you read this book. You'll find the concepts, yes, uh, and derived from. But you won't find anything direct uh, in any of these in any of these secret OTO papers that uh, come from this. Although they're obviously uh, you know, uh, this. The these uh, these are the the probably the oldest available papers we have on the subject of homunculi and. And this aspect of sex magic. Um, I like to skip over some of this, uh, some of this uh, material he has on the on what uh, we refer to as the eleventh degree because it's kind of unpleasant. But uh, um, let's uh, let's get on to the power of images. For an image or a painting remains in the mind much longer. What a man sees with his own eyes hits much closer to the heart than what he reads or hears. Not that I want to set up a new idolatry and idolism, but I also distribute it solely by laying the images out and showing their effects, what they carry out through magia. Now, uh, he also mentions, of course, the that the Christian Church definitely uses uses art, whereas uh, you know uh, the uh, uh, the Jewish religion and and and, and, and eschews, eschews representational art, and so does so does Islam. But uh, uh, the use of images carries over from the you know from the um, uh, the pagan and the classical pagan era into Christianity. Here is something on uh, planetary correspondences, metals, and colors. Now to speak of color further, I say that all true perfect colors number not more than six, namely black, white, yellow, red, green, and blue. Howsoever, you often count seven colors, and I am not against that, because of the seven planets and seven metals, for also in Magia, each planet and metal is bestowed a particular color, Saturn, lead, black, sun, gold, yellow, the moon, silver, gray, mercury, quicksilver, blue, and Venus, copper, green, and Mars, iron and red, and uh, Jupiter, tin, and white. And to speak uh, in genre through gray, it is, it is not true, it is not, it is not a true and perfect color. Like the others, for mixing black and white, or white with blue results in gray, and so it is also to be understood with the other secondary and mixed colors. Now, 
Um, Paracelsus draws a lot from the Arabs, and especially from Picatrix, and Agrippa did too. Um, the uh, here's here's some nucleus one of his homunculus processes. Now to show the method of how and in what form homunculi and idols are rendered and prepared, in which a furtive humanity lies hidden in a spiritual manner. These images are called homunculi because they should all have the form and extremities of a person. However, they should not be as big as a person, rather as small as one can make them. In them, all the operations of man and the powers of man, the volitions of man, are perfectly accomplished. And you should know that homunculi and images may be made for the help of man, for the love of man, for the elevation uh, of the favor and grace of man, for the dispatch of man, for the retrieval of people from faraway lands, for the protection of man, for the weapons from visible and invisible enemies, from sorcery and from... from many illnesses and the like. And in turn, the images may be made to incite people into open hostility, to dispel jealousy and hatred, to bind men, to make them unhappy and unsuccessful, and to prevent them from going about their business. These homunculi and images must be made according to the influences and inner essence of man. And the same influences must flow from the inner essence to the outer. That is, out of the person into a, into a homunculum. For man has within him the astra, and he means the stars, and the constellations as well as the firmament above. And these same astra and stars lay hidden uh, in the mente, that is, in man's mind. Now, this is very important. For it is such a great thing about the mind of man that is, it is not possible for anyone to enunciate it. Like God himself and prima materia and the sky, these three things are eternal and everlasting. So is the mind of man. Therefore, man is blessed and with his mind, that is, he lives forever and never dies, as little as Enoch and Elias, who also rightly actualize their minds. And when we have correctly discovered our minds, then nothing is impossible to us on this earth. How to be able to discern this correctly when it is its exaltation. Just know that the mind in itself is absorbed and drowned, that is, a man is with seeing eyes blind and hearing ears deaf. He perceives nothing with his nose, his hands touch, and grasps nothing. His body senses nothing. This can be explained thus. He sees just fine, but he doesn't know what he sees. He undoubtedly hears speech, but he doesn't understand it. And he has sound and resonance, and, and, and has sound and resonance of something, but does not know what it is and does not understand it. Also, he tastes, but he doesn't know what he tastes. He grasps, but he does not know what he grasps. For he has seen and become smitten with the thing that lies in his mind, like an ape in a mirror or like a child with a fine piece of junk, or like a fool in front of a painting. For when a man engages in such deep thoughts and is submerged in his mind, it is as though he has lost his five senses, and the world takes him to be the biggest jester. However, God holds him to be the wisest person for whom he shares his secrets and reveals all things hidden, more so than any other sages of the world. Of course, what he means by that is 
that is in a yogic trance and you have an injury, you're completely cut off and, and you're, you're in touch with uh, only the infinite rather than, uh, rather than those sounds around you. And therefore, you should also know that the perfect imagination that comes from the astras springs from the mind in which all astra lie hidden. And the mind, belief, and imagination are three things to consider. The names may be different, but they have the same power and strength. For each one comes out of the others. And that can be compared to nothing other than the Trinitarian Odell. And through the mind we come to God, and through belief to Christ, and through the imagination to receive the Holy Spirit. Now, this, of course, is all very hermetic. It's very hermetic, and, and uh, you know, as, uh, as I have often quoted my, my friend and colleague, Juan Duquette, and he says, it's all in your head, but you have no idea how big your head is. Now, let's... let's uh, here Paracelsus on magical techniques here. Likewise, you should know here being stones upon which miraculous images and figures of humans and beasts are burrowed and carved under peculiar influences of service to them, and not according to the course of the stars or astronomical convention. These influences and constellations are not available any time one wants them. Therefore, it is necessary to have another way. And you should know that influences come not only from the sky and the superior stars, but also from people, crystals, steel mirrors, and mirrors of fire, and simultaneously know how man can constellate an image with his innate hidden stars. That's the stars that inside himself, the chakras. Thus, we want to constellate a crystal, a steel mirror, or a mirror of fire, and imbue it with an influence from the superior stars, which therefore will remain inside it for all time, and from which we can extract it as often as we like and as long as the sun shines and according to it, constellate uh, and bring in the influences of the seven planets into them. Under the influence of Venus, let the planet name and symbol of Venus be carved with a star on the backside of the crystal steel mirror or fire mirror, but uh, on, a, on a metal mirror on the polished side. And thus you have the influence captured inside it and should you further desire to bring the same influence uh, so take a sapphire or a stone or carnelian and let therein be cut a likeness or a figure as you wish corresponding to the virtue and power of the planet and which the planet embodies and such as love, friendship, grace, power and being traceable uh, and adept uh, at music and the cutting of the figure in the stone should happen in sunlight, that is, so that the sun shines through the crystalline mirror into the stone, and the, and the, and, and the radius uh, and reflection of the sun's brilliance should continuously flow into the stone. And thus, with this, I have now said enough and desire to include this book on De Imaginibus. And we do so much of that these days. Um, excuse me, sir. Massage my hand. Massage my hand. Um, I just put it I had a cramp in my hand here, and I had Zandria massaging it. Okay. A cramp holding up the book. 
Now this is uh, this is one from Gerhard Dorn, and uh, he, he was commenting on Paracelsus. Uh, so I'll read uh, Gerhard Dorn. This is this is very good. According to the works of Paracelsus, the homunculus homunculus is a highly exalted mystery or medicine drawn by the spiragic art from the most potent staff of natural life found in the human organism. It behooves us to expound its formula here, and no one of sound mind can deny that the staff of life is a source of nourishment. For that, it is superior in this regard over either wheat or wine. It is the foodstuff ordained by God and nature to be the substance preeminent over all others. In the substance of life, Paracelsus produced this nutrient, nutriment, uh, from which he said to have, which he is said to have generated the blood which nourishes and from the latter he was able, to, and from the latter he was able to generate the sperm required to form the homunculus. It should not be inapropos to mention that this nutrient insomuch as the body transforms it into life, must be taken for survival. For unless a man is alive, he is nothing but a corpse. The lowest part, which can scarcely be taken for a human being, thus becomes the most noble and elegant part of all. Insofar as it can be said that this nutrient or nourishment derives from life, the same can be said of a human being. For an homunculus, the latter is generated from the blood and the vital force of a human being. And by this process, both pygmies and giants can be generated. These things which I shall briefly mention here should suffice for the learned, but the one whose mind is covetous of earthly things will understand nothing, insomuch as such matters are ordinarily tendered in their occult terms, that is, in an allegorical and obscure manner. Let us now go at once into detail, as good fortune permits us to do. Let equal parts of the best wheat and wine putrefy in horse's dung, and of course with a bath of salt water, because the latter's likeness to heat. In a hermetically sealed glass container for three natural days, or until the germinated matter has come into existence, this matter, once it has been crushed in a mortar, should be passed through a linen sleeve. The resulting substance will be a white sap, exactly like milk. And once one has disposed of the dregs, place the liquid of this sort in a glass container, sealed as before for the purpose of dispersal or seeping in a marine horse. That's not a seahorse. That's, that's <laughs> maybe it's a manatee. I don't know. Uh, and as before, for 40 days or rather 50. And if the bath is properly maintained with a continual low heat, the substance will be converted alchemically into flesh and blood. Specifically, it will take on the likeness of an embryo. This is the next substance from which the twofold sperm of the father and the mother, without which no form of generation resembling that found among animals in nature can take place, is generated. Let the water then be separated from the flesh and blood of this uh, this embryo, by a bath, and by the same means let the air be separated out and let both elements be preserved by their own, of their own accord. And then allow the water of the first distillation, which had been poured over the dregs of the subsequent distillation, putrefy at the same time in the bath for 10 days, and let the water which is the vehicle of the fire then be distilled at the same time with the fire in the bath and let the water then be separated into something uh, until something desires to ascend and let it be preserved by its own action and let the fire be distilled separately in a vessel placed in, in the ashes. And thus far, 
the four elements have been separated out of their chaotic state within the embryo, and those that were not separated out shall be described below. Wow. Now, can you get an idea? An idea of some of the alchemical process that goes into this. And um, in alchemy, of course, they keep reducing down, as, as you know. They reduce further, further, further down until they finally get to the point where where they, they have the uh, the pure ash or the pure essence, uh, the pure powdered substance. And um, um, I would like now to read this uh, from uh, uh, Jean, from Jean. Uh, Fano's uh, final final uh, treatise, the 1906 treatise, the one in which he mentions the, the chemical wedding. And uh, anyway, he, he has an early rant against feminism. <laughs> in here, uh, Jean Fano doesn't particularly like, uh, this is 1906, you know, that was the era of the suffragettes, and he's, he's quite concerned about about them asserting themselves too much. Uh, now, um, I mentioned that uh, this scene in uh, in uh, the Universal horror film *The Bride of Frankenstein*. You remember that? That was with the one where Elsa Lancaster was was the Bride of Frankenstein, and she had the white streak in her hair, you know, and and of course Mel Brooks satired it in Young Frankenstein, uh, but in uh, in the Bride of Frankenstein, uh, Victor Frankenstein, you know, it was the sequel to the first the first film, and he had already created the the monster, the male the male version, and uh, and the monster, of course, wanted him to you know wanted him to create a create a companion for him, and and. Uh, and he didn't want to do it, but but uh, you know the monster you know, he kept threatening him, and and, and uh, he receives a visit, as you recall, if you've seen the film, and I think we all watch it around Halloween or something. And he receives a visit from this this old alchemist, Doctor Pretorius, and Doctor Pretorius shows him this little king, his little king and his little queen, and and. Uh, but this this uh, part of, of Jean Fano's uh, uh, article is, is describes that. It was in Calabria that Count Jean Ferdinand Kufenstein, Chamberlain to Maria Theresa, met the Abbe Galoni. Both were Freemasons and Rosicrucians. Both were equally plunged into the study of the marvelous, shut up in the laboratory of the convent of the Carmelites. They worked day and night for five weeks, attempting to steal some of the mysteries of nature, that fathomless gulf. Before the kindled fire, the two scientists evoked scenes which made the hair of the passive camberer stand on end. And then one fine day, the spirits, the homunculi, appeared. Ten were created. Amongst them, a king, a queen, an architect, a monk, a minor, a nun, a seraph, and a, and a chevalier, a blue spirit, and a red spirit. And as they came into the world... They were shut up in a receptacle of glass holding two liters. Now, these bottles were filled with holy water and tied up in a damp ox bladder. Uh, a seal of wax was placed upon this to prevent the spirits from issuing from the flasks. The Abbey then blessed the new beings which had come amongst the mortals and artificial creations and was thus clothed and the religious sanction. And one starry night, Camerer tells us, the eight spirits were carried into a 
gardens situated outside the cloisters. And these creations of Count Kubenstein and the Abbey Galoni did not weigh very much. And like Grudgeon's, none of them was more than a span long. And what had been done and what had to be done was to enlarge and develop them, each carrying two receptacles. The Count, the secretary, and the monk of the cloisters went to the end of the garden and they first of all produced to the burial of the spirits in two cartloads of mules dung. And for several days they watered the dung heaps with the, with the mysterious liquor prepared in the convent of the Carmelites. And under the influence of this ingredient, the dung began to ferment, and the spirits which were buried in it seemed to be interested in the operation, for they cried and squeaked like hungry mice. And four weeks passed thus, weeks full of anxiety and waiting. And on the 29th day, the Count, accompanied by the Abbey and Camerer, went into the garden, and the priest, clothed in his chasuble, celebrated a religious ceremony, and the Count prayed and recited psalms whilst Camerer swung the censer, and the eight spirits were dug up and carried to the laboratory, where they took a comforting bath in warm sand for three days and three nights. A prodigious metamorphosis followed, and from the moment when when Camerer was again permitted to see the spirits, he was astonished at the changes which had had ensued in the interval. First of all, they had all grown, and each one had acquired the special marks which which, which were to characterize them in their new life. The men had beards, Every uh, uh, very thick and, and, and bristly, the ladies an angelic expression of face. The Abbey Galoni took charge of their costumes. The king received on this occasion a fine crown and a scepter, the chevalier a sword and a lance, and the queen a precious diadem. And even the architect was given a compass and a square. And the eight spirits were not easy to manage. Evil in their nature, they quarreled, and above all, too soon acquired human passions. And did not the monk take a fancy to bite the abbey on the thumb at the moment when the latter was cutting his hair? And then their food, and then their food demanded peculiar, uh, peculiar care. Each three or four days, they were given a special preparation which the Count boiled in a little silver box and served to them with a spoon, which had not yet uh, served any uses. We must add the prayers which had to be recited during the operation of feeding, and the benedictions which had to be given the spirits, and above all, the special care necessitated by the magic seal. For the little men showed a desire to escape and prevent them and and prevent them the receptacles were not only sealed, prayers were said and formulas of exorcism recited, which paralyzed their spirits of revolt. And there was only one little being who by his gentleness seemed to repay his creators for the pains of his creation. <coughs> and rolled his eyes like an epileptic, and he even had to be fed with the blood of a freshly killed animal. And this household of 13, consisting of 10 spirits, uh, two evocators, and the poor camera, who was charged with the terrible task of, of supervision, lasted for a long while, while Tad Kufenstein, for some time, took a fancy to transport his little household to Vienna, where he showed the divining talents of his spirits to the initiates of the Masonic Lodge of the Orient at Vienna. <laughs> the Grand Orient. Uh, the meetings there began at 11 o'clock in the, in the evening and finished at 1 in the morning. And amongst the attendants, we may note first Count Max de Lambre, uh, diplomat, diplomat, diplomatist and writer, 
and the latter having one day called the spirits horrible toads, Count Kufenstein no longer allowed him to go and go in and see them. And we may name as well the Count of Thun and the celebrated partisan of Mesmer and and, and Busaguer. And, and as they grew older, the spirits became more and more wicked and turbulent. And Camberer felt so much anxiety regarding them that he would not, under any pretext whatever, live near the laboratory. And when they were in, in an ill humor, they answered all of the questions put to them by nonsense. Or, still worse, expressed themselves in riddles. Brain-racking devil Dutch, the sense of which was impossible to grasp. And whilst the two spirits... Um, the red and, and, and the blue informed Count Kufenstein upon all questions provided to him in a, in a palpable, palpable manner that to the spirits nothing is impossible. The eight others would not take the trouble to answer questions which did not concern their specific, special province. Thus, the king and queen would only give information about things concerning diplomacy, etiquette, and politics. The monk and the nun upon religious questions, the seraph upon what passes in the celestial spheres, and the minor upon the mysteries of the bowels of the earth. But the misfortune, but misfortune is always nearest, lying in wait for spirits as if they were mortals. Count Kubenstein seeking one day a mislaid manuscript of Paracelsus, which he wished to consult, ask an opinion upon the subject from a monk, and he had the misfortune to throw down the receptacle, which broke in a thousand pieces. And they took from it the monk, wounded and bruised, in vain did they lavish on him every care in vain. They subjected uh, him to uh, magnetization, and the poor monk died for good and all after having several times and by great efforts tried to breathe the air, rolling his little eyes in a fearful manner. He was buried in a coffin of black cardboard, and the Count shed abundant tears on the occasion. And the King's adventure was quite different. One day he succeeded in escaping from his receptacle and approaching that of the Queen. And Cameron, this is this, this scene, by the way, is in The Bride of Frankenstein. And Cameron, entering the laboratory, perceived the grave danger uh, which threatened the two royal spirits. And from the little escaped king who was bending over the receptacle of the queen, regarding her uh, with a wicked and fiery air. And at his secretary's cries, the count arrived, terrified, and both set themselves to the, to the pursuit of the, little, of the little lover, who, more and more enraged, jumped from one piece of furniture to another like a squirrel, squalling like 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 a devil, until the moment when overcome with fatigue he fell, and the count took him in his hands, but the little king, bounding under the of bit his creator on the nose, and the seigneur kept the marks of it for fifteen days, and the death of the monk left the count inconsolable, and together with the count of with the count of Fun, he resolved to replace him by an admiral. Again, shut up in his laboratory, Kufstein, with his friend, the Count, worked there for weeks on end before a fantastic fire. And they only succeeded, however, in producing a feeble little being, not bigger than a young leech, who, after some convulsions, died miserably. And this was the end of the dream of creation, perhaps through weariness, perhaps through the fear of hell, and perhaps touched at last by the prayers of his wife, the Count decided, as we are told by the Masonic collection, to get rid of the nine spirits. And what became of them? History does not say. Now, that, of course, is just as fantastic as what we saw in the film. Peers that that these people and and in that Masonic Lodge in Vienna that they actually believed all of this. They believed it really this this 
this reads like like an account that that uh, that uh, seem to be actually uh, have some truth to it. But oh, I, I it's, it's very difficult to for us to believe it. But then on the other hand, Somerset Mom does does use it in his novel uh, in his novel uh, of, uh, the Magician, which by the way was made into a film in 1926. And uh, the silent film, which sometimes runs on on uh, Turner Classic Movies, uh, and you can you can get it on DVD. The film it, it's quite interesting. Uh, of course, uh, W. Somerset Maugham used Crowley as his villain, as a model for his villain in The Magician, and gave him the name of Oliver Haddo. And Crowley enjoyed the novel so much that <laughs> that he took Oliver Haddo as a pen name. And wrote several several of his own articles under that pen name, and then just recently there was a movie made called Crowley, in which um, a <laughs> very clever film in which a a modern day college professor named Oliver Haddo uh, goes into a, a sort of a dark type, dark tank kind of experiment, and gets and gets programmed with a uh, computerized version of Aleister Crowley and comes out of it and becomes Aleister Crowley. So Oliver, and the, the twist is, is Oliver Haddo then becomes, then becomes Crowley. It's a very clever film, and uh, you, you might enjoy it. Anyway, we're just about running down to the end of the, uh, the hour here, and, and uh, this, uh, this book, as I said, I want to I want to thank uh, Chris Maturian for uh, for giving giving us a copy of of, uh, of the Codex uh, Homuncle, and and uh, and uh, this this is really a fascinating book, and uh, I strongly highly recommend it, and uh, and I, in fact I think we'll we'll get all of the the, the, the whole series one uh, zero through seven because. The next one that uh, uh, that the author has slated is on visionary magic, and that ought to be really, really interesting. So next week we'll be back with uh, with another uh, show on uh, on uh, hermetic magic, and uh, and until then, uh, have a great holiday season and good magic.